All right, well, we have reached, we have reached the last sermon uh, in the book of Romans, and uh, it's, uh, it's been a great ride. I hope you have enjoyed it as much as I have. I have loved preaching through this book and uh, kind of disappointed that it's over. But uh, as we uh, finish our series this week, uh, I'm calling this message Until We Meet in Rome, which of course is uh, you know, Paul's final farewell. Until we meet in Rome, uh, here's the last things that I want to say to you. And so as I was thinking about uh, this last sermon and, and really the book of Romans as a whole, just thinking, you know, what image, what can we say that captures uh, what it's like uh, to study God? And I'm sure uh, many of you have heard about the illustration of the diamond, how you can look at a diamond and it's so multifaceted and every time you turn it just a little bit, you can see something a little bit different and, and the study of God is like that. But I think that illustration fails because we can see, we can apprehend the whole diamond by looking at it, and certainly we can't apprehend all of God. Uh, I thought about light going through a prism. You know how uh, it's white light, uh, and, and within the white light are hidden the colors of the rainbow, right? Roy G. Biv, as we were taught uh, in grammar school. Uh, and all you have to do is reflect this white light, though, through this glass uh, triangular prism, and all of the secrets are revealed. So uh, I think that that illustration fails because we know all that we, we can see in the light, or the colors of the light anyway, uh, from putting it through the spectrum, uh, or through the prism, the, the, uh, the spectrum is revealed. Well, as I started to think about light, I thought, well, what about the whole electromagnetic spectrum? now? At this point, I confess that I'm in way over my head here. Uh, but here's what I think I understand. On one end of the electromagnetic spectrum, uh, we have uh, very high range frequencies. Uh, those are the gamma rays. And at the other end of the spectrum are low frequency waves, which are radio waves. And in the very middle, in this very tiny sliver of the whole entire electromagnetic spectrum is this thing that we call visible light. And in a way, that's kind of like studying God because we can see uh, something of God, but so much more uh, remains unexplored, uh, the depths not plumbed. But still, uh, scientists have been able to map out the entire electromagnetic spectrum, so there's not a lot of mystery there. I thought about the biology of cells, uh, RNA, DNA, uh, how these things reproduce, and the incredible cell biology uh, that, that exists. But scientists have even now mapped out the entire genetic code. Uh, so that illustration isn't adequate. I thought about the size of the universe, uh, the, the, the uh, immensity of the universe and everything that's in it. Uh, and yes, uh, there are some things we understand about the universe and lots of things that we still don't. So uh, sort of an adequate illustration in one respect, but it only covers the physical, right? It's the physical universe. When we come to the study of God, it's so much greater uh, than just what we can see in the physical universe. So all of these illustrations just fall short of, of what it's like to study God. We can't quite possibly apprehend it all. We can get some of it by looking at nature and what God has revealed through his natural revelation, but yet so much more remains a mystery. And God has only allowed us to see uh, what he's revealed of himself in nature and what he has revealed specially of himself 
through the Bible and uh, for our purposes specifically in the book of Romans, uh, so it, uh, w w which was revealed to Paul, obviously. And so uh, as we study this book of Romans, uh, we learn things about God that science can never reveal, right? Uh, physics and geology and biology can reveal some things about God, but so much more uh, is left uh, because we learn about the love and grace of God only through special revelation, through uh, what he's done by giving us his word, by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, so as we finish this magisterial letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Romans, uh, all, all we can say is that we've covered a lot, but there are depths to God that we haven't touched, that we don't even know to touch because God is still uh, mysterious in so many ways. And so uh, I'm sad as we come to the end of this book of Romans. It, it feels like a mountaintop experience that we've uh, been through. But uh, as we finish Let's just remember that we're never really done, are we? We're never really done. There are, there are depths here that we'll never uh, fully plumb. And so even though uh, we've reached the end of the book today, uh, I want to encourage you tomorrow morning, pick up again Romans chapter 1 and just read it over and over and over again. Uh, so that is my encouragement to you because uh, just the, the amazing depths of the book of Romans. So in these last verses, we're going to look at Paul's final warning uh, the final greeting, and then a final doxology. Uh, that's how Paul concludes the letter. So verse 17 to 20, uh, which I read to you already. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, and therefore I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The Lord, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So the first thing we see is that there is a threat. That's what verse 17 is about. There's a threat. Uh, and so we have to remember now, going back about to what, four and a half chapters since the beginning of chapter 12, uh, Paul has been talking 16, 17, 18, 19, what was, uh, 12, 13, 14, 15. Yeah, four and a half chapters. I thought I did my math wrong there. Four and a half chapters, Paul's been talking about the unity of the church. And now uh, in this passage here, he starts talking about, well, what are the threats to unity? And we see it right here. The danger of false teaching entering the church has been always present. It's as prevalent as in Paul's day as it is in our day. And so this is something we always have to be concerned about. And we can look to the letter of Galatians for evidence. And the reason I'm picking uh, Galatians is that it was probably the first New Testament letter written, probably Paul's first letter. Maybe the book of James was written earlier, but this is a very early letter, the book of Galatians. And uh, what happened was that we see from the earliest days of the church um, that these false teachers were coming in. Uh, and what happened was Paul established these churches in Galatia, but then as soon as he moved on to other regions, these legalists came in uh, and they started trying to uh, turn over all the teaching that Paul had taught before. And these false teachers uh, taught that the Gentiles had to be circumcised and that they had to keep the law. Uh, and these were called Judaizers from the verb which means to keep the Jewish traditions and customs. So Paul, after having left this church, finds out that the Galatians are being taught this by these Judaizers, and he responds with great anger 
uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. What's the false gospel? Well, the false gospel is to be saved, you have to keep the law and be circumcised. Paul said no, to be, to be a Christ follower, you have to follow Christ. You have to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You don't have to follow these laws anymore. So Paul was no stranger to false teaching. It was everywhere he went. In fact, he went to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, along with Peter and James, and they had to figure out uh, what are going to be, what are we going to say about the Gentiles and their uh, is it necessary for them to keep the law or not? So they had to come to a resolution at the Jerusalem Council. Paul knew that wherever he went, that these false teachers were going to infiltrate the church, stir up dissension, uh, and, and cause problems wherever they went. So uh, that's why he gave such a, pull, a strong warning. He said, uh, watch out for those who cause dissensions, or dissenters uh, is a better word. And, and this word means to be in factious opposition. That means that you're willing to tear the church apart to advance what you believe or, or what your false teaching happens to be. And these teachers will also cause hindrances. Hindrances is a word we've encountered before in the book of Romans. It's from the word scandalon. A scandalon is the word that means a stumbling block in its noun form or to place a stumbling block in its verb form. Uh, so to place a stumbling block is, is what happens when you put something in somebody's way that causes them to stumble or to, uh, to, to hurt their walk. And that's what these false teachers do. They are a cancer in the church. They have to be diagnosed. They have to be cut out and removed from the church in order to survive. Now, Jesus talked about the false teachers himself. Remember, all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, uh, Jesus said, Beware of the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So Jesus warned them to test the prophets, listen to what they say, test their teaching, and test their fruit. You will know the prophets by their fruit. You know, false teachers don't announce themselves, right? They don't show up and say, hey, false teacher here, right? They come in and they twist the truth just a little bit, a little bit, almost imperceptibly until you find that you're buying into something that isn't true. Paul told them, be on the lookout for these people. You will know them if you pay attention. Learn to recognize a false teacher and then turn from them and run like crazy. Don't hang around a false teacher. So this is the threat. There will be false teachers in the church. Now, what are their tactics? Verse 18, these men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, but by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So smooth and flattering speech, those are the tactics. Is that prevalent in the church today? Of course it is. That is going on all over the place, even in our evangelical churches. So two dangers that we always have to be cognizant of and on the lookout for are flattery and smooth speech. We don't want to be sucked into it. And the danger is because these things appeal to us so strongly, right? Now, if I asked any of you, all of you, uh, how do you have Siri on your phone set? Most of you, I would suspect, have Siri set to speak to you either in an English 
or an Australian accent or you know something different than what you have than what you naturally hear right nobody sets Siri uh, to a Brooklyn accent they want to hear something pretty beautiful speech right and that's what the Australian and the English accent are uh, it sounds beautiful and exotic and sometimes we can uh, be swept up in the speech like Siri can give you wrong directions in an Australian or an English accent and you're not even that upset because it just sounds so pretty uh, the content of the speech almost becomes irrelevant uh, a good salesman can convince you that your life will be empty and meaningless if you don't have this vacuum cleaner or, or this set of pots and pans. You absolutely have to have it or your life uh, will be meaningless. And so this is smooth speech uh, and we can easily fall prey to it. And false teachers can convince us that a falsehood is truth and that truth is falsehood. Are we seeing that uh, in our world today, uh, has anybody noticed a lack of truth in the media or wherever else you get your news from? Uh, it's out there all over the place and it's hard to distinguish what is true from what is false because they typically uh, will twist the truth and they'll make you believe it's true. Now, this takes us all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Uh, God taught them the truth. He gave them one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then what happened? Uh, God exits the scene, Satan enters the scene and said, did God really say, right? And from that little question, that seemingly harmless question to Eve, he twisted the truth just a little bit. Eve bought the lie, ate the fruit, Adam was there with her, sin and death entered into, into the world. So watch out for smooth speech, be sure there's truth behind it. And also watch out for flattery. Uh, flattery is such a dangerous thing because we love the approval of others, right? We love to have our egos stroked and have people tell us how great, how wonderful we are. It's like potato chips. You can't eat just one, right? You have to have another potato chip, another potato chip, and then the bag is gone. You just keep going with it. And if we fall prey to flattery, well, what will happen is that we won't recognize false teaching. We'll be so beguiled, so enamored with the flattery on one hand that we'll miss the false uh, false teaching being taught over here. Uh, ladies, this one's for you. Uh, you've probably had friends who uh, have just become enamored by the, the star football player or whatever, and they start dating this person, and, and you can see, and everybody can see, that this guy is a total jerk, but she can't see it because she's been caught up in the flattery uh, and, and the smooth speech of this guy. And it happens both ways, uh, just using that as an example. Uh, but this is what happens when we fall prey to flattery and smooth speech. <clears throat> now, Paul said, keep away from it. Run away from these people because uh, they had learned good teaching. See that in verse 17? It says, don't stay or run away from anything that contradicts the teaching that you have learned. And so the Roman church knew the gospel. And if there was any doubt about the gospel, well, Paul had just laid it out in, in painstaking detail in 16 chapters in the book of Romans. So they knew it. They knew the gospel. They had learned good teaching. And so they should be able to recognize the counterfeit because they knew the truth. And that's a good lesson for us today. We need to be in the word. We need to know the truth because when we know the truth in our heads, when we hear something that contradicts it, we're going to recognize the counterfeit. Uh, and so we have to be uh, sure that we know the word so that we don't get carried away by smooth speech and by flattery. Now, Paul talks about the motivation 
of these deceivers. What is their motivation? Well, it's their appetites. Uh, the appetites that he talks about are uh, not relating to hunger. It's not hunger for food. It's hunger for self-glorification, for attention, for, for glory, for people to, to talk about how great they are, uh, for power, for control. Uh, does that exist in our world today? Yeah, uh, I would say it does. We have politicians and uh, all kinds of people who are smooth speech and flattery uh, trying to glorify themselves. So you'll know that because you can tell, uh, you can test a false teacher and you can know somebody who's teaching falsely. And that comes to what happens in church too. Uh, when you listen to somebody uh, preach from the scriptures, you need to test what they say. Uh, and so if they constantly point you to themselves and they're trying to glorify themselves and it's all about themselves, well then you probably have a false teacher on your hands. But if they constantly point you to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his beauty and his glory and the gospel and the way of salvation and the way to live, well, then you probably have a true teacher on your hand. Uh, now, false teachers exist and happening more so even in the churches today, and I could start naming names, and you can too. Um, what we know is that when a teacher starts off good, that's no guarantee that they're going to finish well either. So that's why testing your teachers is not a one-time event. We constantly test our teachers because some start out good, they turn bad. So test the teachers who you listen to. Test me. Be sure that I'm preaching the word, that I'm preaching it from the scriptures, that what I say uh, correlates to what you read in the Bible. And if, if I go astray, uh, I'm counting on you to let me know. I don't want to go astray. Uh, so you have to uh, be aware of their tactics as well as the threat. And so uh, the response then the proper response uh, Paul talks about in verses 19 and 20. Paul praised these Romans because they hadn't fall, fallen prey to these false teachers. He had heard reports about their obedience. And so Paul rejoiced because these uh, reports proved their faithfulness and their obedience. But remember, uh, faithfulness and obedience today is no guarantee of faithfulness and obedience tomorrow. Uh, the first three chapters of Revelation prove that to us, right? Uh, John, uh, writing the book of Revelation, uh, writing down Jesus' words, where Jesus condemns these first uh, century churches because they had left their first love. They had become lukewarm. They have tolerated the false teaching of, of the woman Jezebel. Uh, these are all first century churches that had these problems and, and, and they had slipped away. And it can happen in a generation or even less if we're not careful, if we're not paying attention. And that's why Paul warned them to be wise. Be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. So we have to learn to distinguish good from evil. We believers are presented with good and evil every day. We have to recognize what is good, recognize what is evil, recognize what's truth and what is false. We have to discern. We have to choose wisely. Uh, and so we want to be innocent in the ways of evil, which is just another way of saying, uh, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The wolves are circling. The lions are out there looking for someone to devour. And so Satan is the source of their power. Now, the good news is that uh, we're promised again here uh, in verse 20 that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And of course, this brings us back to Adam and Eve once again, all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Uh, though they sinned and sin and death entered into the world, God's promise in Genesis 3.15 is that there will be a redeemer. There will be a Messiah. One day, Jesus will crush Satan's head. 
Now, I wish that today was that day, and I pray that today is that day, and I think as Christians we should uh, be praying that, that Jesus would come again soon uh, because the world is in chaos, as you know, and we need Jesus. We need him to come so desperately, but for reasons known to God only, he has allowed Satan uh, some freedom to sow seeds of evil and destruction uh, for a time. But we know that a time is coming when Jesus will come again, and he will crush Satan. He will bind him. He will throw him into the lake of fire, uh, and there will be a time uh, where uh, goodness rules again, and, and we look forward to that day. And so Paul prays in light of these things that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with them. And we all need grace so desperately, don't we? Not, not only for our salvation, but to live our daily lives. We understand the grace required, not only in saving faith, but in understanding the scriptures and to help us discern false teaching from true teaching and for, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand against falsehood and evil in the world and to be secure in the knowledge of our salvation. So we need the grace of our Lord Jesus to be with us. All right, so that is the warning. Beware of false teachers. Now, uh, greetings from Paul's companions. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Cortus, the brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, let's put some flesh and bones on some of these uh, men like we did last week uh, with some personal information about them. And, and I want us just to understand that these were real people. They, they were real men traveling with Paul uh, on his third missionary journey. And in fact, uh, I want to show you from Acts chapter 20 just how real uh, these people were. So uh, I'm going to put a map on the screen. And if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 20. Uh, verses 1 through 6. And I want to see, I just want you to see how uh, real this whole situation was and how real these people were. This is Luke writing, and he's describing what is going on uh, as uh, Paul now has, uh, he's just survived the riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Uh, and they're planning to, to move on to take this uh, offering that they've collected and go back to Jerusalem uh, with the offering that they've collected from the Macedonian and the, uh, churches and the churches in Greece. Uh, I'm going to put this map up and you can follow Paul's travel. So <clears throat> uh, Acts 20, chapter 1. After the uproar had ceased in Ephesus, so Paul's in Ephesus here, right? The, uh, that's where the uproar was, Acts chapter 19. Then Paul sent for his disciples, and when he had encouraged them and taken leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. All right, so Paul goes up to Macedonia. That's the area of Philippi here. And uh, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, then he came to Greece. This is Greece down here. Specifically, Corinth is what he has in mind. Uh, and he spent three months there. Now, those three months that he spent in Corinth were the three months, that's when he wrote the book of Romans, right there. And when a plot was formed against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he was going to get on a boat from Corinth and he was going to sail for Syria over here. But there was a plot to kill Paul and his companions, so he decided to go back via land. So that's the way he decided to go. 
and he was accompanied, now here are some of the people who we are seeing in uh, Romans chapter 16 now. He was accompanied by Sopater, that's the same guy, Sosopater. Uh, he sent his greetings in Romans 16. Uh, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, who we see here in chapter 16, and Timothy, who we also see here in chapter 16, and Tychemus and Trophimus of Asia. Now these had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So they had already left. They're up here working their way back around, and they're in Troas, and they're going to continue their journey to Jerusalem. And then Luke says, we, so Luke is traveling with Paul, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and reached them at Troas within five days. And we spent seven days there. So isn't that cool? These are real guys. These are real people. And they're traveling with Paul. And they're at that moment in Corinth where uh, Paul is writing the letter. Uh, and he's, he's written this letter to them. And he's got all his friends with him. Timothy, Sopater, uh, Gaius, Timothy, Tychus, Trophimus, and Luke. This is an entourage of the people who were in those Macedonian and Corinthian churches that he was collecting the offering from. And now as we look at uh, chapter 16 again, uh, who do we see? We see Timothy, my fellow worker. We know Timothy, right? He's uh, addressed in almost every letter that Paul wrote. And in fact, Paul wrote a couple letters to him. Uh, and just before uh, they embarked on uh, our, uh, I'm sorry, he's also got uh, Lucius with him. Uh, Lucius, we don't really know who that is. Uh, Lucius is, there, there's a Lucius of, uh, uh, Lucius of, where is he? Lucius of Cyrene in Acts chapter 13. This may be the same Lucius, but we don't know. There were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean who had been brought up uh, with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So maybe it's that Lucius, we don't know. Other people think that Lucius is another name for Luke, but because he's called a kinsman, probably not because Luke was a Greek. So when we compare Paul's letters uh, to the book of Acts, we see all this correlation. Uh, Paul spent three months in Corinth, and he wrote that letter there. They uncover this Jewish plot. He can't go the way he wanted to go. He's got to go by land, and he's got all of his friends with them. And so I just think that's so neat to look at that. Uh, there's a guy named Jason. Uh, he may be the Jason of Acts chapter 17 whose uh, house, the angry mob there, uh, stormed in Thessalonica because they thought that the, Jason was hiding Paul, so they stormed his house. A Sopater is, uh, scholars are almost unanimous about this, that he's the same Sosipater of Acts chapter 20. It's a shortened version of Sosipater, just like Paul called Priscilla, Prisca sometimes. Uh, even Tertius gets a mention, right? Paul allows Tertius, uh, this faithful scribe who's, imagine having to listen to Paul dictate 16 chapters of the book of Romans and write it all down. Paul throws him a bone, gives him a little reward, and says, yes, you too, Tertius, can give your own greetings. And Gaius sends his greetings. This is likely Gaius Titius Justus, who's mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Remember, Paul, uh, during his second missionary journey, went to Corinth, and the Jews there would not receive Paul. So Paul turned, and he went to the Gentiles. And Acts chapter 18, verse 7 says, Then he left there, the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Erastus, another person who is traveling with them, also sends his meetings. Now he, or sends his greetings. He's described as the city treasurer of Corinth. You know, in 1929, 
archaeologists were doing some work in Corinth, and they found uh, a, a pavement tile uh, with an inscription on it, written in Latin, that reads like this. It says, Erastus, in return for his aedalship, led the pavement at his, or laid the pavement at his own expense. So Erastus laid a lot of the pavement in some of the ruins that you can see uh, at Corinth. Now, uh, scholars think this is the same guy, the city treasurer. And they debate how high a position Erastus held because they don't know what an ship precisely is. Uh, but he was there and ministering to Paul. Uh, this is the same Erastus, more than likely, who is mentioned in Acts chapter 19, 2 Timothy 4, uh, where Erastus is shown ministering to Paul uh, in Corinth. So as we saw last week, these guys are just regular guys, right? Regular men who are doing the work of the Lord, toiling hard. Now, the folks that he had, was writing to in Rome, uh, those were local missionaries working hard for the Lord, trying to spread the gospel around the city of Rome. And the people that Paul was traveling with were international uh, missionaries or traveling from country to country, port to port, place to place, trying to spread the gospel overseas. They were all doing their part as God led them, as God gifted them, uh, using their gifts for God's glory. And I imagine that, that uh, as Paul was finishing up this letter and he's writing out, uh, you know, about to sign off and sign the letter and give the, give the letter to uh, Phoebe, uh, I bet these guys said, hey, wait, Paul, before you, before you finish the letter, uh, don't forget to greet these people from us. And that's why you see these greetings uh, in the end of this letter. And so they sent their greetings, and they were uh, just about to embark on this tra treacherous trip to Jerusalem. And so they say uh, their farewells and greetings. And then finally, Paul concluded his letter with one final doxology, verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for ages long past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Well, that is a mouthful and a half, isn't it? Uh, we could spend weeks just preaching through that doxology, uh, which I won't do. But I just want to point out four particular phrases. And the first one is that God is able to establish you. This word establish is, is a very important word. Uh, it means to set up, uh, to fix firmly in place. The fact that God has established us means that he has caused us to believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. He paid the penalty that we could not pay on our own so that we could have eternal life. And having received the gospel, having received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, uh, we have been firmly fixed by God in him, in his kingdom, uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preached and once established, we can't be moved, we can't be shaken, we can't be broken, we can't be lost. None of these things can happen to a Christian. Our eternity is secure. And it makes sense that we have no reason to fear once God has established us, once he has fixed us firmly in place, 
who can snatch us from his hand, right? Uh, God foreordained our salvation before the beginning of time. And he predestined us. He called us. He justified us. He glorified us. There is no force in the universe or beyond it that is strong enough to separate us from the love of Christ in uh, in, in, uh, in him, in the gospel. And so that is our joy. That is our hope that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it means that God has established us. Now, the revelation of the mystery. Uh, in the Bible, a mystery is usually uh, something that has been hidden in former times, but now has been revealed. So most times when Paul uses this word, he's talking about the fact that the Gentiles have salvation. And it's a mystery because although the kernels of Gentile salvation can be found uh, in the Old Testament, particularly in Genesis chapter 12, uh, where God promises that uh, he will bless Abraham and then he will bless the nations through Abraham, uh, God did not fully reveal the mystery until the New Testament. And the clearest example, I think, where we see this is, is Paul's explanation of the mystery in Ephesians chapter 3. And here's what Paul says there. By referring to this, referring to the mystery, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So you and I are the beneficiaries of this great uh, uh, sharing of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. Uh, we are beneficiaries of the promises that God made to Israel. You and I are co-heirs with Christ, as Paul says in chapter 8. I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. All that Christ will inherit, we will inherit as well. All because of God's ability and his desire to establish his kingdom through the love and, and grace of Jesus Christ, even to us Gentiles. And this uh, mystery is made known by the scriptures and the prophets. That's the fourth phrase. You know, Paul bookended this gospel, or his, his letter here with this idea that, that the scriptures reveal, the prophets reveal uh, this mystery. Uh, all the way back in Romans chapter 1, here's what Paul said. This is the very first verses of, the, of his letter. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son. So the first thing he says is that this has been foretold through the prophets and through the scriptures. And now he finishes the letter the same way. This is foretold through the prophets, through the scriptures. So that anybody with a Jewish background who knew their Hebrew scriptures would know this is what was foretold. This is the Messiah. And so the Old Testament testifies to this coming Messiah. And Paul, now on the other side of the cross, can see clearly how the prophets and, uh, and scriptures testified about Jesus Christ. But it wasn't always that way for Paul, was it? Paul grew up a Pharisee. Uh, from the time he was a boy, he knew his scriptures backwards and forwards. He knew everything about the Hebrew scriptures. It wasn't lack of knowledge that prevented him from understanding who the Messiah was. It was lack of understanding 
brought about by the Holy Spirit. That's what was missing. And God had to do a work in Paul's life, which he did. Uh, Jesus came to see Paul as he was on the road to Damascus and revealed himself to him in a special way. And now Paul can see it clearly. And God has done the same for each one of us who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation, though the details of every one of our stories is slightly different. Uh, But he's revealed himself to us and we've received him and he saved us. And that's why it talks about the scriptures being revealed to all the nations. That includes all of us Gentiles who are not native of Israel. And then the last phrase is to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Uh, This phrase always makes me want to bust out into that great hymn, immortal, invisible, God only wise. It's such a powerful, wonderful hymn. Uh, God displays his wisdom uh, through Jesus Christ supremely. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says, In Christ all treasures and wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Uh, To him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, it's just an amazing letter. And and when we first started the book of Romans, uh, January 2020, uh, I promised you then uh, that we would cover all of it and we would not shy away from any difficult or controversial issues. And I hope that I have fulfilled that promise. Uh, We have to cover it all because Paul covered it all. Uh, He talked about sin in chapters 1 through 3 and our human predicament, the the trouble that we are in. He talked about salvation in chapters 3 through 5, God's gracious solution to our sin problem through faith in Jesus. He talked about sanctification in chapters 6 through 8, through the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who believe we can uh, defeat sin in our lives and we can become more Christ-like. He talked about God's sovereignty. He's sovereign over salvation. He chooses those who are his. And he talked about service in chapters 12 through 16, our obligation to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to this God who has done so much for us. Paul's doxologies in Romans and his other letters uh, just show us so clearly that Paul is Uh, nearly breathless, uh, at a loss for words, like at the very limit of human vocabulary to try and describe this God who is so gracious, so good, so loving, so wise. Uh, Science and and nature can reveal a lot about God, but God's love and grace revealed in the scriptures and through Jesus Christ is where we really see God's character. And so uh, as we close, uh, may God always be this real uh, to you as he was to Paul. Uh, maybe we, uh, may we always look at God with the same sense of awe that Paul did. You know, God never became old or tired or familiar to Paul. He always looked at God uh, jaw open, right? Agape, uh, just at the wonders of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And our response should be the same. I just uh, ask you to think about God's grace in your own life, what God has done for you. Uh, In my case, he took a self-sufficient, proud, God-denying heathen, and he opened my eyes. Now, I had heard the gospel before. It wasn't that I hadn't heard it. God had to do something in me, and by grace, he did. Uh, he, He allowed me to see the truth of the gospel. He drew me to himself and caused me to believe it, and he changed my life. Now, that's amazing grace. Now you ponder your own story as we conclude the book of Romans. What has God done for you? How has God taken you 
from what you were and turned you into what you are today. And what does God still have planned for you by his grace? Now, this is what the book of Romans is about. It's about our salvation, and then it's about our service. What do we do to serve the Lord and bring the gospel to those who still desperately need to hear it? Amen. Lord God, this book of Romans is so incredible, and uh, I'm so grateful that we have had the endurance and perseverance to make it all the way through it, Lord. I pray that it has changed us, uh, Lord, that we understand you better, uh, that we love you more, and Lord, that we would seek with greater urgency uh, to be your instruments in this world uh, where we fight against evil, Lord, and, and we try to bring the gospel to people who so desperately need it, Lord. Uh, we pray that the Holy Spirit will assist us in that task, Lord. Uh, use us as you will uh, to bring the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.